There is no health without mental health. Hi, welcome to Beyond Madness. I am your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist and this podcast series features psychiatrists in conversation with myself discussing mental health issues, issues that affect our society on a daily basis. Emotional issues can affect you or someone in your life at any time. And the intention of this podcast series is to give you a better understanding of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Today's topic is mental illness, human rights, and dignity. And on today's podcast, I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. John Parker. John is a specialist psychiatrist at Lentechia Psychiatric Hospital and a senior lecturer in the Department of Psychiatry and Mental Health at the University of Cape Town. He is also a founder and board member of the Spring Foundation, and if we have some time, we might briefly touch on the work of the foundation. John, welcome, and thank you for making the time to join me in conversation. Thank you. Good to, good to hear from you. Well, I always remember very fondly the, uh, the T-shirt that you sold me at a meeting uh, that we attended, and what really struck me about the T-shirt was the, the front, which has the word normal split into two. So it's N-O-R at the top and MAL, M-A-L below. So a very South African T-shirt, but what really captures me every time I wear it is what's on the back of the T-shirt, which is the Krishnamurti uh, uh, quote. It is no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society, and I, I often think about that uh, as I go about my daily business. Now, John, I want to start out with the issue of of dignity. Um, there's a certain Hollywood stereotype of psychiatry that that portrays the psychiatrist as some kind of coercive agent and the patient as a hapless victim. And I'm thinking back, and maybe I'm giving away my age here, but One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with uh, Jack Nicholson and, and the whole issue with electroconvulsive therapy and the movie Francis with uh, Jessica Lange and, and the use of frontal lobotomies and uh, the impact on, on personality. And, you know, I'm coming at it from the perspective of the discipline how it's portrayed in these movies as being the one that seems to strip individuals of their human rights and ultimately their dignity. You know, one generally thinks of that within the context of how society might view individuals who are mentally ill or suffer from uh, mental illness. But here we have this um, view portraying psychiatrists and the discipline in that way. Do, do you think that this is something that is operational in contemporary psychiatry? I can understand where it comes from. I am not, I'm not sure whether it's, it's really operational these days, I, but I think that varies. I, I think the, and, and I think it varies according to the context. I think there's still enormous social pressure to conform. Right. And I think that that does take people, some people to psychiatrists. I think it takes, it results in some parents taking adolescents to psychiatrists. So I think as psychiatrists, it's very important to be aware of that legacy. I think we need to own that legacy. Um, I think that was a big element of how, how psychiatry was practiced, particularly in the 50s and 60s, at times when 
things like homosexuality found themselves creeping into the psychiatry textbooks exactly. as pathology. Yep. You know, it's a dark past. And I think it's critically important that, that we own that. Right. And we understand we, we need to show the world that that's not what we're about. I suppose the issue is we do not want to be seen as agents of social control. Because that has, as you exactly. said, you know, it's got very dark connotations. I mean, I, I was going to bring this question in later, but it's, it's, it's kind of germane now. I was just thinking of, of the misuse of psychiatry, actually. And I was thinking of the furore around Soviet psychiatry and how they controlled mm-hmm. political dissidents by having them labeled as being mentally ill and then confined them to institutions. And I think there we saw the misuse of psychiatry um, in the employ of the state in terms of political dissent. And I think that that was a very dark passage uh, in, in, in the history of psychiatry. And I think to some extent this issue of psychiatry as, as an agent of social control I think is, is, is germane. I think so. I think it's almost as if that stereotype, that ironically that Soviet stereotype was, was then – Kind of used, you know, generalized right. to the rest of the world and, and into other settings. I don't think we can deny that psychiatrists all over the world in the past have been implicit in, in a kind of this idea of a normal. Right. And, you know, getting back to the t-shirts, I like to talk about the tyranny of normal. Okay. You know, it's interesting. The, the Latin origin of the word, uh, normalis. Right was in fact a carpenter's square. Uh-huh. You know, which is kind of ironic given the you know the the way you know in the flower power era people spoke about non hippies as being square. Okay. Um yeah. But it was, you know, you conform to a general rule. And it's so interesting that people often come, you know, when I see patients, one of the things they say is, I just want to be normal. Right. And of course that's that's really pressing a button for me. Well, I think it's interesting because at the end of the day, how do we define normal? But that's a whole conversation on its own. I'm wanting to come back to the issue of human rights. And before we get into something more specific in relation to South Africa and and human rights, how would you characterize human rights in general? I mean, I I have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which obviously details, you know, a range of, of, of aspects that constitute human rights. But, but in general, how would you characterize human rights? You know, to me, it's, it's the fundamental starting point for each individual. I, you know, and, and particularly in a, in a time such as the time of COVID, we also need to understand that, that all rights are balanced with a collective responsibility we have to one another right. and the planet. Right. For me, the human rights are the basic fundamentals. The right, you know, and most of those are obvious, the right to have food, right. the right to have a shelter, the right to feel safe, the right to carry out your, your basic fundamentals of existence. But less, slightly more abstract, but I think no less critical, is the right to be respected mm. as a human being. Yes, and I think that brings in the issue of dignity. Exactly. And I think that... Too often, our patients are almost stripped of that by virtue of having a mental illness. One ceases to see the the human 
who is that person who is mentally ill? Precisely. You know, if we get back to to what uh, Irving Goffman, the, the the sociologist, said in in you know when he he coined the use of the term stigma, mm-hmm. um, Goffman said that stigma referred to a spoiled identity. That fundamental thing, and I, I I seem to recall the origin of the word identity relates to to belonging, to a sense of of being a part of. The Latin word idem, or the, or the same. So the commonness of humanity is, ident- is denied. So this is important because I think that when a person has received a diagnosis of a mental illness, to some extent that almost becomes your identity and everything about you gets filtered through that. And this is for me uh, an issue that it's difficult for society, family, communities to kind of tease out the person who is within that mental illness that at some point kind of dominates who that person is. Exactly. We, we hear it in the language. You know, we, uh, loonies, crazy. Right. You know, it becomes right. a whole thing. And, and if you, you thought it just about all, all kinds of, uh, of prejudice manifest mm-hmm. this way. You know, people would talk about homosexual. You know, it's not a human being with a, a particular uh, sexual interest. He becomes right. entirely that that single critical aspect of the identity becomes the whole identity. So you go from you're not a person with anxiety or a person with with depression. You're a depressive. You're a schizophrenic. It consumes the identity entirely. And you know what's interesting about that? I mean, as you were talking, it kind of struck me. This is like a cognitive distortion insofar as that would be selective abstraction, where you literally take one thing and you make it everything. So where people are viewing an individual in that way, they are actually manifesting a cognitive distortion, in which case they are the ones who've got the problem, actually, which is kind of ironic in a sense. Yeah. So, so if one looks at human rights – and one looks at our own constitution, for example, and I'm going to deviate slightly, but I want to come back to that Human Rights Commission report. The The issue of our constitutions is basically everybody is equal before the law. Everybody has the right to have their dignity respected. Now, obviously, when the, the, the new constitution, as, as I would call it, was commenced in, in it was February 1997, all acts of parliament had to be rewritten to uh, accord and align with the the spirit of the constitution, which was a very human rights driven constitution, and right. we have our very own mental health care act, which arrived in two thousand and two like a bolt out of the blue. I think it took most clinicians by surprise, but I think what was particularly striking about that with me and and, and this is where i 'm coming from in terms of everyone is equal before the law, the provision for involuntary care where actually in terms of the act, you are not really equal before the law because you can have your rights, so to speak, removed on the basis that you pose a risk to yourself and potentially society. Is that a contradiction in terms if you look at the Constitution versus that provision within the Mental Health Care Act? I think we, we, we have to understand in, in any functional society, 
there is a limitation to some degree on all rights. We all can't do exactly what we want all the time if it affects other people. So I, I don't think it's entirely contradictory, but I think what, what's critically important um, to understand is the, the principle of least restrictive means, which is right. a, a, a fundamental principle embodied in, in the Mental Health Care Act. And, and that, that principle basically is to recognize that whenever you, you are in that undesirable position of having to limit an individual's rights, yes. it needs to be done using the least restrictive means possible. So, um, and, and the constitutional court in issuing the judgment on that gave the right to vote to prisoners was very right. particular about this. It says mm-hmm. that any limitation on fundamental rights has to be extremely specific in its purpose and okay. carefully limited in its effect. So the, the, okay. it was interesting, the Constitutional Court in that judgment actually made it clear that they did not see removing the right to vote as a form of punishment mm-hmm. as completely out of the question. They kind of left that door open. They said, for example, if you mm-hmm. committed treason, perhaps right. it might be a reasonable argument to say, okay, for the crime of treason, a punishment would be removing your right to vote. Okay. However, to do that as a blanket thing for anyone who so much has stolen love of bread is clearly non-specific and not at all limited. And that's what we've got with people with mental illness. So it's a lot more nuanced, actually. And I think the other issue for me is that human rights are not a free-for-all. And I think that's what's very important because I think people are very quick to talk about human rights as as, as absolute and I think that there are rational reasons why potentially they are not. And so that's, that's actually very important. But I think what I want to add is that, you know, people often think that psychiatrists simply can have you committed to an institution as if it's simply a stroke of a pen. And actually yeah. what people need to appreciate is that within the Mental Health Care Act, as onerous as clinicians may have found it initially, we've kind of adapted to it almost, what, 19 years later – um, there are a lot of procedures that are required and there's quite a high benchmark in order to have somebody um, committed or declared an involuntary, well, I call them patient and there's another issue that I want to raise with you about how we refer to patients in the, in the act. But there's quite a high benchmark for someone to become an involuntary user and I think that that is actually very important so that people understand that psychiatrists cannot simply remove a person's rights at the stroke of a pen. It's much more layered and there's a high benchmark. How would you, how would you respond to that? I would agree with that completely. I, um, it's a process. There, you okay. know, it requires two doctors or two, two healthcare practitioners with knowledge of mental health care to agree that such a person, you know, might need to, to have their right, right to freedom removed. It then requires a 72-hour period of observation. And then the issue of what rights are removed is Mm -hmm. extremely specific because the Act states very clearly the rights that are removed are very specific and 
any rights or duties the person may have in terms of any other law are maintained. The person's okay. dignity and privacy must be respected. This is, this is set out very clearly. Yes. And the limitation of the rights must be proportionate to the person's mental health status. And, and the access may intrude only as little as possible as to give effect to appropriate care, treatment, and rehabilitation. And, and, and this is, this is why this, this, this part of the electoral act that right. says that people may not be registered to vote if they're detained in a psychiatric hospital is actually incompatible with the act they're being detained under. So that's very important. I'm going to, I'm going to come back to the electoral act, but what I, actually wanted to say, and, and it's an observation, in fact, if somebody is psychiatrically ill to the point that they do pose a risk to themselves and to others, it is in fact a respect of their human rights to care and treatment to designate them as involuntary users for the purposes of restoring them back to the uh, level where they can, in fact, um, participate fully in society. So the, so in fact, in, in, in some ways, there's no contradiction because if you look at the requirement of care and the right to have appropriate care, in fact, involuntary care is actually almost respectful of human rights. So in order to restore you, I need to remove certain rights and then I will restore them to you when everything is settled. Absolutely. You know, that's a critical duty. Perhaps this is a trite example, but it's kind of analogous to a bunch of friends. One of them is crazily drunk. Are the other friends going to allow him to make a complete fool of himself and do all sorts of things he regrets? Or are they exactly going to step right. in? You know, and, and this, so using the act, when someone is, is in a, in a mental state where number one, they don't really understand what they're doing. Number two, they don't have capacity to see that this is going on. We we have a duty to to help them. It's a exactly. duty of care. And I think that this kind of speaks to my opening comments on the issue of dignity and how psychiatrists are portrayed or had been portrayed. And I think what we're demonstrating here is the extent to which psychiatry has come a long way in terms of refining process and procedures to ensure quite the opposite, i.e. not the removal of dignity, but the respect of, of dignity. But you mentioned something now about uh, alcohol and excessive alcohol and, you know, what would a good friend do? Um, where does substance abuse kind of fit into institutionalization? Because that, that, that not necessarily the kind of um, obvious mental illness in terms of a psychosis associated with schizophrenia or a manic individual who's bipolar, but somebody who's a substance abuser and needs to be, I'm going to use the word committed in inverted commas. Where does that fit into to, to all of this? So not under the Mental Health Care Act. There's a separate piece of legislation, The I think it's called the Substance Dependence right. Act, that does make provision for uh, involuntary detention of someone for the purposes of rehabilitation. But the steps that require are required to be taken to reach that point are um, far more onerous. What's required is a detailed um, Mm -hmm. report by a social worker showing how 
this person's addiction or de- dependence is at such a point where there's no other avenue. Um, so that's a much more complex, uh, I think appropriately more, more, more. Okay. Complex so this process. is not a 72 hour, two doctors concur, et cetera, et cetera. This is Absolutely a much more detailed not. individual view of the person in terms of what they're doing, what the consequences are, what the impact has been, et cetera. So yeah, it, it certainly sounds exactly. a lot more onerous and a lot more time consuming. So this is not a quick or can the court. Yeah. I was just wondering whether the court could, in the best interest of the individual who might be harming themselves as a consequence of substances, provide a temporary admission pending a report, or does the one have to follow the other, the report first and then? As far as I know, the, the report first. But, you know, they, they, I think we must admit there is a gray right. area where, you know, where someone who is severely abusing substances does then cause such harm to themselves that they develop symptoms of mental illness. And that's when the health, mental health care act kind of can kick in. John, I want to come to the uh, South African human rights commission report. Now, I mean, this was released in, in March, 2018. And as I've kind of looked at some of the key issues that you highlighted in an article that you wrote for South African psychiatry, it was a pretty damning report in terms of mental health care and the and the state of mental health care in South Africa. I mean, would you, would I be correct in 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 your reading of that report and and what the findings demonstrated? Absolutely, I think it's very damning. You know how damning is it? Well, in the in the opening in, in the introductory right. remarks, it refers to the prolonged and systemic neglect of mental health at the level of policy implementation. It's very clear that, you know, and then goes on and on to list all, all the problems. But what really yes. shocked me um, was the lack of reaction when that report yeah. came out. I think that's, that for me, and, and, and that's why I was very specific about mentioning when it was released, because we're sitting in 2021, uh, over three years yeah. since the release. And my question is, okay, that's great. South African Human Rights Commission has issued this report. It's a damning report. What's changed? In, in my view, absolutely nothing. Speaking from a situation where we are under tremendous pressure to, to just simply absorb all mental health patients into the psychiatric right. hospitals to keep them out of the emergency centers. The pressure just grows and grows. We're seeing no investment um, or minimal investment in, in the resources mm. required. Um, so what's changed? And, you know, I, I, it's very easy to bang on about how bad mm. government is and how bad this is and that is. But I think it's more fundamental okay. than that because we need to own this as yep. a society. We allow this. As a society, we allow this to happen. And that's why I was, I was so shocked by the lack of reaction at the launch of that report. I was, I was, I was invited to make some introductory yes. remarks at the launch of the report. And, uh, I put a lot of, a lot of effort into that because I, I thought, wow, we, this is yeah. the moment where this thing goes big. This is the hammer that we were waiting yeah. for. And I, I don't think it made any mainstream media whatsoever. That's sad. 
I have to say that's sad. And certainly as a psychiatrist who's worked in the state sector, it's incredibly disappointing. And, you know, when we talk about stigma, you know, we tend to get caught up in how society perceives individual patients. But what about how other disciplines perceive psychiatry and how government neglects mental health? I mean, those are, to me, very profound manifestations of kind of systemic stigma, which has profound implications for ultimately how we care for our patients. Absolutely. I, I agree 100%. You see, and, and, and the irony here is mental illness is incredibly right. common. There's a story I love to tell, and, and, and it's a story of when I became yeah. a psychiatrist and or when I started training to become a psychiatrist. And I suddenly began to think there was an epidemic of mental illness. Okay. Because everywhere I went, anyone I spoke to suddenly told me about uh, themselves or more, more commonly right. their friend right. or relative who had mental illness. And I couldn't believe it. It seemed to be everywhere. And then I realized, of course, nothing had changed except me. The fact that I was telling them that I realized almost all these conversations began with, oh, and what do you do? Uh, no, I'm studying psychiatry. I try not to tell people I'm a psychiatrist. Now, when you mention that, you give them permission to speak about something they can't tell anyone else about. Yeah. And, and as a result, we get this view, this window into the yeah. hidden world. And you know, that kind of ties in with something that you, you said in the article that I'm, that I'm looking at. Less than 10% of those requiring mental health care in the public sector actually receive it. And I think that's exactly. a frightening statistic. Yeah. So we didn't really touch on yet something which is, I think, uh, very sensitive, which is the life isidomeni issue. And I, I, I would, I'm kind of putting it into the discussion because I think that to me kind of epitomizes the uh, absolute lack of respect for humanity, dignity, and life. Actually, we lost lives in that tragedy. And, you know, we've had the commission, inquiry, nothing has actually happened in terms of accountability. And I think for me, as a human rights violation, that's got to be up there, surely. Absolutely. I, I to think that we, you know, as a society, as government, as, as, as practitioners, allow yeah. this to happen. And, and I would suggest continue to allow things like that to happen is an indictment on all of us. This, this is us. But it, it, and, and we're allowed to happen because we have this idea that that form of us is unacceptable, is to be amputated. And I think part of the problem is how we speak truth to power. I know that's such a cliched expression, but it is important in that's terms right. of if you see it's not right, you act. And it's often difficult because one is acting against one's yep. employer, so to speak, where these kind of things are happening. John, we're coming to the end of our discussion. I didn't even get into the issue of the Electoral <laughs> Act and voting, and that seems to me that that's a topic which we might have to come back to uh, on another day. But, you know, this is 
in preparing for this program or this episode, I was kind of thinking about just how much responsibility we have as psychiatrists in dealing with the most vulnerable members of our community or certainly very vulnerable members of our community yeah. on a on a daily basis. And it just kind of struck me that I'm not sure that as a trainee I fully appreciated just what a responsibility that was. And I think that I'm hoping that from today's conversation the issue of human rights how it impacts upon psychiatric patients, but how we think about human rights generally in terms of our society is something that will be uh, considered by those those who listen. So, so John, I want to thank you again. It's been a great discussion. I've enjoyed it immensely, and, and, and hopefully we'll come back and do it again at some point in the future. So thank you, John. Well, thank you so much. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking these, as you can hear, hugely Issues I'm hugely passionate about. Um, Absolutely. If I can end on, if you don't mind, if you'll give me one second. Of course, of course. One reflection on power. Yes. And, you know, we tend to talk about power as power as those in authority. What we forget, Mm. though, is the power of the mass, of the masses, the power to conform. And I think the real courage of speaking truth to power is the courage to speak against the norms of society that allow us to continue to ignore those who are suffering. 100%. Ignore the suffering within so many of us. Um, the, okay. the deep reason for stigma is, is that, that it, it arises, it, it brings up a sense of shame. A sense of shame in all of us because we're all pretending to be perfect. Which we're not. Which, which of course we're not. And that is the courage of, that's the real truth to power we need to speak of, is that we're not perfect and we don't need to be ashamed. Powerful words, powerful words. Thank you so much. So, remember, there is no health without mental health. I hope today's podcast has been enlightening. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo, and this is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave.